Hi, you found the Out of the Ordinary podcast, where we believe that the very best stories grow out of the soil of ordinary life. I'm Christy Purifoy. And I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And a few of our favorite ordinary things in this extraordinary time of global quarantine are FaceTiming with long-distance friends, the smell of fresh sheets, and all those overdue library books I have that have now had their fines waived. <laughs> and Lisa Joe, mine are headphones, four pairs on four kids, the internet, which is keeping us connected, and my seedlings, my baby seeds under grow lights in the basement. Friends, may you find joy in today's conversation. Get comfy. Here we go. Lisa Joe, we always talk about this podcast of ours as a storytelling podcast. Right. You and I get together every week. We trade stories. And of course, they're not crazy wild stories. They're just stories of our ordinary lives. But we always, <laughs> we're always astonished by them, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> but I think also we could, instead of calling this a storytelling podcast, I think we could just as accurately describe it as a listening podcast. Yes. You and I get together and we listen. Yes. We listen to one another. And I know that our friendship is stronger because of it. And we always learn new things about each other, which is oh, always true. surprising since we've known each other for so long. That's true. It's so hard to believe. You'd think, you know, now that we've known each other for about two decades, that there'd be nothing left to learn, but there always is, which is another endorsement for listening. Um so if this is a listening podcast, I love as well that a community has begun to, to grow out of it. And so in this podcast and our community of listeners, we together really value um, three things. I think we value faith and honest talk about faith. We, of course, value community. We value relationships. And we also value art. So we often here on the podcast share um, books we love, poems we love, music we love, films we love. Um, I'll include TV shows as well. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> I'll count that. Them as art. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one thing that's becoming clear to me is that listening matters so much for each of these. So it matters for our friendship, which means I think it, learning to listen well to others matters for community. It matters um, for it. You know, can help grow healthy communities when we really practice listening to one another. I think listening matters for our faith when we learn to listen well to God and to our own souls. That's when spiritual growth can happen. And I think as well that learning to listen to art can help with the, with those other two. That when we learn to listen to the voices of others that come to us through stories and artworks, um, then just our ability to listen generally um, is strengthened. And so I'm starting to see, I guess, how the pieces of what we do in this podcast, how they fit together. I like so that. So this week, I'll just share, um, you know, Lisa Joe. Um, some of our listeners might be aware, but um, this week in the United States and our country has been really difficult. And our country, our communities, our cities, we are grappling with some hard realities around racism. We're having hard conversations. We're learning things. Um, yeah, it's hard. And I know that you and I, our response this week has been to um, be a little quieter and to really try to listen. And to listen especially to what Black people in our country, Black Americans are saying and try to attend to their stories. So since that's what we've been up to this week, we thought this week on the podcast that we would share 
some of the artistic voices, some of the books by Black writers that we love and are returning to this week, and um, in the hopes that our listeners would pick up some of these books as well. So we are we're going to share some favorites and do some reading. And I don't know everything that you're going to share, so I'm kind of I'm excited know, to see where too. you're going to take us. There's nothing like somebody else's story to really hear. Because listening means hearing, and hearing means acting, right? I love how Jesus always said that, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, So that's what we've been doing this week, and so we wanted to bring you some really amazing voices. So I'm going to start out with a friend, actually, we've talked about on the podcast before. Her name is Patrice Gopo, and she wrote a book that Christy and I both endorsed. We love it. It's called All the Colors We Will See, and the subtitle is Reflections on Barriers, Brokenness, and Finding Our Way. So the way today's storytelling is going to work is Christy and I are each going to read to you some of the stories from authors, friends, and just uh, wise voices, people we haven't met in person, but who are willing to take the time to do what Christy and I value most, which is to share their honest, true stories with us. So this is an essay from Patrice's book called Braided Love. My baby girl sits on the bathroom counter body facing the mirror, hands grabbing at hair elastics, a bottle of lotion, or whatever else is in reach. I drape the towel over her shoulders and unravel her braids, now fuzzy from toddler life. Every girl with hair like my daughter's or mine experiences the beginnings of this type of hair routine. Our coiled strands stretch in multiple directions, sprouting from our heads like the proud branches of a mighty tree, with roots extending to Jamaica, India, and parts of the African continent. Our hair relies on tender care, gentle shampoos, thick conditioners, oil to add moisture, wide-toothed combs. I massage coconut oil into these dense locks and use the comb to prepare her hair for four braids, anticipating the beginning of her tears. And the tears come. Not immediately, though. First, her palms press against her head and prevent my comb from pulling the tangled strands. I move with caution while I hum nursery rhymes to quiet her antsy body. Each time we settle into this process, I'm tempted to leave the strands loose and free. But if I choose that route, I know a fight with major tangles looms, one that will result in her hysterical screams, her pleading eyes, and perhaps the possibility of having to cut the resistant snags. For a not-yet-two-year-old and her timid mother, it's much easier to face the slight challenges of detangling and retwisting hair back into the shape of braids. I work through the ends, moving upward to the root, and sometimes when I reach a particularly knotted lock, she jerks her head away. Her eyes start to flood and I'm forced to begin again. Frustration is building inside me. Braiding will decrease the accumulation of knots, but I wish combing the tangles didn't hurt her. I wish the process were easier. I wish I possessed greater skill. What message am I communicating as I tug and pull at her hair? Can a toddler sense affection in the mother who brings her pain? All done, baby girl. You look lovely. Her eyes meet her reflection in the glass. They brighten and match her unfolding smile, her lips touching the mirror in a self-kiss that declares her image beautiful. As I watch, I try to remember a time when my own child self adored the face staring back at me. 
a time before I became dissatisfied with my appearance, long before I found peace in the sight of my reflection once again. But I can't. In all my memories of childhood, nothing about my appearance brought me contentment. Not my shape, not my complexion, not the hair my mother braided each day. My mother had a sweet floral scent from the special lotion on her bathroom counter. This aroma, combined with the strong smell of hair oil, tickled my nose while I sat in front of her on the stool beside her bed. One by one, she untwisted my braids— Morning after morning, year after year, my mother combed and braided my hair while I stared into the mirror hanging on her bedroom wall. I can't recall all that occurred between us in those moments. We had conversations, of course, perhaps about spelling words or friendships. There was talk of chores, I'm sure. What I remember, though, is my mother braiding my hair with precision, knowledge, speed, and resolve. Even in the midst of a busy morning, she made time to unravel, brush, and rebraid. It would be years before I comprehended the message this act imparted. As a child, though, I stared into the mirror, unsatisfied. The mirror reminded me that my braids looked nothing like the streamers of hair flowing through my classroom at school. Every girl there seemed to have hair as straight as the lines on my notebook paper. I wanted that hair. Mine was the single black face amid the white in my class photos, but it was my hair that drew the attention. To the amazement of my classmates, my braids had the power to hold their shape without the aid of pesky elastics. To my humiliation, when several girls declared that people like me put oil in their hair, I had to admit they were right. I wanted to explain why. I wanted them to understand, but their repulsed expressions made me keep silent. Each curious comment was further proof that my hair wouldn't fit the smooth strands celebrated in nearly every direction I turned. I watched the same animated movie princesses with their pale skin and abundant hair. I flipped through the same magazines with the stark absence of girls who looked like me. No one wears braids like this, I said to my mother. No one. I just wish my hair were different. Those braids were thick arrows that each day pointed to my failure to meet the standards of beauty floating through my life. Just after my 11th birthday, my mother agreed to let me exchange my coiled mass for chemically straightened hair. She abandoned our daily braiding sessions and embraced blow dryers and curling irons instead. With my straightened hair flowing past my shoulders and my index finger tucking loose strands behind my ears, I knew I'd found the beginnings of happiness with my hair. Over the next 11 years, I tried bangs, bone straight hair, hair curlers, and even layers like the women in the sitcom Friends. My hair traveled the gamut of styles as time passed and my world expanded to include more women who looked like me. Late one evening toward the end of college, I found myself staring in the mirror again. By now, I used the word beautiful to describe the curve of my hips and the soft angles of my face and the medium brown of my skin. This is who I am, I told myself, and who I am is good. The straight hair I saw in the mirror burdened me. I'd been feeling unsettled and weary with my hair for months. Maybe I was exhausted from using chemicals to force my hair into something it wasn't. Or perhaps I was tired of the constant prompting to ensure my hair looked a certain way. 
I reached for the cold curling iron and touched the metal that had curled my straightened hair year after year. I raised my hands to my head and ran my fingers through my smooth mane. As I stood there, looking in the mirror as I'd done so many times before, a verse fragment reverberated in my mind, fearfully and wonderfully made, fearfully and wonderfully made. I breathed out a long sigh. The very hair I'd spent so many years wanting reminded me of the synthetic material that framed Adol's face. In that moment of surrender, I understood something I hadn't grasped before my faith invited me to see myself as part of divine creation. I wouldn't find peace by changing my appearance. So after years of striving for another look, I wanted my curves, my complexion, and my hair. It was time to revert to my naturally springy coils, and my mother was still there, willing to help braid. My daughter and I visit my mother's home where it's been years since the lost braided hair, but the hair accessories I remember remain. Perhaps my mother misses those morning braiding sessions, or maybe she saves the brush and hair bands as tributes to daughters now grown. More likely, though, she keeps them in the hope, now fulfilled, of little girl feet running through her house once again. Our first morning home, my mother spreads a towel over part of her bed to protect the heavy comforter. She sets my daughter on the towel and stands behind her, unraveling her braids. She massages oil into the strands, just as I've done in the past. I watch my mother brush, part, and braid my daughter's coils as if she were a fragile figurine. My little girl's tears fall for my mother the way they do for me, but I notice my mother's confidence. I study her technique, trying to learn how to make this process easier for my daughter and for me. My mother mists a leave-in conditioner over my daughter's hair and uses the brush to create even parts. I see the tenderness in her able hands that communicates a deep love for the little girl seated on her bed. My mother's fingers say that my daughter is worth the time and worth the effort, that she is loved. This is the same message my mother's fingers told me each morning of my childhood. Her desire to ensure my even parts and neat braids were her way of teaching me to see beauty and worth in my reflection, even if I questioned that truth. Later in the day, my mother and I sit on her couch and clutch mugs of tea. Stillness fills the house as my daughter naps in my old bedroom. While we sip our drinks, my mother's words meander through her stories of raising daughters. Sometimes, my mother tells me, she expected me to understand what she was trying to teach through her actions alone. Now, she confesses, she wishes she had augmented those lessons with words and spoken what she wanted to convey. I think back to a few hours before to when I watched my daughter perched on my mother's bed. My mother's regrets make me consider what I hope to teach my own daughter as I unravel her braids. Perhaps it isn't enough for me to set aside time for her hair. The act of applying oil to her scalp and twisting her strands into braids may only whisper a message I want her to hear, a whisper she won't discern until she has the maturity to silence the cacophony of opinions ringing in every woman's ears. I envision the years ahead as I develop greater precision and skill. When my daughter sits in front of me and stares at her reflection, I will do more than braid. I'll add words to the message my mother taught me. 
As one braiding session folds into the next, I will tell stories of the rich heritage in every strand of my daughter's hair. With each gentle tug at her tangles, I'll tell her that her curls come from part of divine creation. The words I share and the time I give my daughter will remind a baby, then a child, then a woman that she, too, is loved, not because of what she looks like, but because she is a created being. I will part her hair into three sections. As I twist each strand, I will speak of my mother, my daughter, and me, three generations entwined, passing along a message of love through the simplicity of braided hair. Ah, so good. Thank you, Patrice Gopo. Thank you. And we'll be sure and link all the artists that we share from today. And we strongly encourage you to go and purchase their books or check them out of the library, because these are stories you don't want to just read in part. You really do want to read in full. Lisa Joe, I'd like to read a little bit from a book I love by Jacqueline Woodson, and it is called Brown Girl Dreaming. Uh, this is a book, it's... Um, it's, a, it's like a memoir and a book of poems, and so it's all written in free verse. It won the National Book Award. It was a Newbery Honor book. So really, it's a book for children, for young people, but I would recommend it just as much to adults. And you might think a book of poems would be inaccessible or would make the stories harder to access, but actually I find it the opposite. The um, poems are very accessible, very easy to follow, and the rhythm of them just sort of propels you through the story. So I think this is actually a great one to read aloud with kids. Uh, She writes in this book about growing up. So it's about her childhood, and she writes about growing up as an African-American in the 1960s and the 1970s in the North and in the South. So she has a real diversity of experiences to share. And I noticed as I was sort of rereading again before our podcast that there are a couple poems about gardens and growing things. Of course you found those. (laughs) I love that so much. So I thought, well, okay, uh, I'll I'll read that. Um, So there's one little poem in here called The Garden. So I think I'll read that one. The Garden. Each spring... The dark nickel town dirt is filled with the promise of what the earth can give back to you if you work the land, plant the seeds, pull the weeds. My southern grandfather missed slavery by one generation. His grandfather had been owned. His father worked the land from dawn till dusk for the promise of cotton and a little pay. So this is what he believes in your hands in the cool dirt until the earth gives back to you all that you've asked of it. Sweet peas and collards, green peppers and cukes, lettuce and melon, berries and peaches, and one day, when I'm able, my grandfather says, I'm going to figure out how to grow myself a pecan tree. God gives you what you need, my grandmother says. Best not to ask for more than that. My grandfather says, and goes back to working the land, pulling from it all we need, and more than that. Oh my goodness! That's, I could Good, almost huh? I could read more and more. <laughs> yes, well, I think we're going to need some more of that maybe during this time together. There's something about poetry that feels very visceral, like all those words you can almost taste. 
Yes, yes. Ooh, ooh. Should I should I read one more you from should. this? Because I have another poet to share. But okay, okay, I'll read one more. These are so good. <laughs> Let's should. see. Uh, I have another little bookmark in here. Let's see what that is showing us. Okay, so part of her story is that um, her mother, well, her family's roots are in South Carolina, um, but they live in Ohio. And that's hard because her mother misses home. So this one is called Each Winter. And there's plants in this one, too. (laughs) That's why I chose it. Each winter. Each winter, just as the first of the snow begins to fall, my mother goes home to South Carolina. Sometimes my father goes with her, but mostly he doesn't. So she gets on the bus alone, the first year with one, the second year with two, and finally with three children, Hope and Dell hugging each leg and me in her arms. Always there is a fight before she leaves. Ohio is where my father wants to be. But to my mother, Ohio will never be home. No matter how many plants she brings indoors each winter, singing softly to them, the lilt of her words, a breath of warm air moving over each leaf. In return, they hold on to their color, even as the snow begins to fall. A reminder of the deep green south, a promise of life somewhere. Oh, that's astonishing. She sings softly to them, to her plants. Wow, that image yeah. is, is astonishing. There's something about the gift of words isn't there to help us step into another world. Mm-hmm. My next author I want to share um, in the U.S., I think pretty much everybody has heard of him. His name is Trevor Noah, and most people here know of him as the host of The Daily Show. But before he was the host of The Daily Show, he grew up in South Africa, and he has an amazing book called Born a Crime. And part of what that refers to is the fact that he had a black mother and a white father. So he grew up as a mixed race child in South Africa during the height of the most racist regime history has ever known, apartheid in South Africa. And he shares in this memoir the most powerful, beautiful, tender, heartbreaking stories of his childhood growing up in South Africa. And his mom, like all moms, wanted him to grow up safe. And interestingly, in this Part of the story I'm going to share, his mom is actually the one who had ended up getting shot. And so he's at the hospital now, and he has just found out how much it might cost to treat her because she had canceled her insurance, her health insurance, the month before. So this is that moment in the hospital. My mother's greatest fear was that I would end up paying the black tax, that I would get trapped by the cycle of poverty and violence that came before me. She had always promised me that I would be the one to break that cycle. I would be the one to move forward and not back. And as I looked at that nurse outside the emergency room, I was petrified that the moment I handed her my credit card, the cycle would just continue and I'd get sucked right back in. People say all the time that they do anything for the people they love. But would you? Really? Would you do anything? Would you give everything? I don't know that a child knows that kind of selfless love. A mother, yes. A mother will clutch her children and jump from a moving car to keep them from harm. She will do it without thinking. But I don't think that a child knows how to do that, not instinctively. It's something the child has to learn. 
I pressed my credit card into the nurse's hand. Do whatever you have to do. Just please help my mom. We spent the rest of the day in limbo, waiting, not knowing, pacing around the hospital, family members stopping by. Several hours later, the doctor finally came out of the emergency room to give us an update. What's happening, I asked. Your mother is stable, he said. She's out of surgery. Is she going to be okay? He thought for a moment about what he was going to say. I don't like to use this word, he said, because I'm a man of science and I don't believe in it. But what happened to your mother today was a miracle. I never say that because I hate it when people say it, but I don't have any other way to explain this. The bullet that hit my mother in the butt, he said, was a through and through. It went in, came out, and didn't do any real damage. The other bullet went through the back of her head, entering below the skull at the top of her neck. It missed the spinal cord by a hair missed the medulla oblongata and traveled through her head just underneath the brain, missing every major vein, artery, and nerve. With the trajectory the bullet was on, it was headed straight for her left eye socket and would have blown out her eye, but at the last second it slowed down, hit her cheekbone instead, shattered her cheekbone, ricocheted off and came out through her left nostril. On the gurney in the emergency room, the blood had made the wound look much worse than it was. The bullet took off only a tiny flap of skin on the side of her nostril, and it came out clean with no bullet fragments left inside. She didn't even need surgery. They stopped the bleeding, stitched her up in back, stitched her up in front, and let her heal. There was nothing we can do because there's nothing we need to do, the doctor said. My mother was out of the hospital in four days. She was back at work in seven. The doctors kept her sedated the rest of that day and night to rest. They told all of us to go home. She's stable, they said. There's nothing you can do here. Go home and sleep. So we did. I went back first thing the next morning to be with my mother in her room and wait for her to wake up. When I walked in, she was still asleep. The back of her head was bandaged. She had stitches in her face and gauze covering her nose and her left eye. She looked frail and weak, tired. One of the few times in my life I'd ever seen her look that way. I sat close by her bed, holding her hand, waiting and watching her breathe, a flood of thoughts going through my mind. I was still afraid I was going to lose her. I was angry at myself for not being there, angry at the police for all the times they didn't arrest Abel. I told myself I should have killed him years ago, which was ridiculous to think because I'm not capable of killing anyone, but I thought it anyway. I was angry at the world, angry at God, because all my mom does is pray. If there's a fan club for Jesus, my mom is definitely in the top 100, and this is what she gets? After an hour or so of waiting, she opened her unbandaged eye. The second she did, I lost it. I started bawling. She asked for some water, and I gave her a cup, and she leaned forward a bit to sip through the straw. I kept bawling and bawling and bawling. I couldn't control myself. Shh, she said. Don't cry, baby. Shh, don't cry. How can I not cry, Mom? You almost died. No, I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to die. It's okay. I wasn't going to die. But I thought you were dead. I kept bawling and bawling. I thought I'd lost you. No, baby. Baby, don't cry. Trevor, Trevor, listen. Listen to me. Listen. What, I said, tears streaming down my face. My child, you must look on the bright side.
what? What are you talking about? The bright side, mom, you were shot in the face. There is no bright side. Of course there is. Now, you're officially the best looking person in the family. She broke out in a huge smile and started laughing. Through my tears, I started laughing too. I was bawling my eyes out and laughing hysterically at the same time. We sat there and she squeezed my hand and we cracked each other up the way we always did. Mother and son, laughing together through the pain in an intensive care recovery room on a bright and sunny and beautiful day. <laughs> I know. I feel like laughter through tears is the emotion right. I feel when I read this. Oh, so good. So good. Um, so, yeah, moving on. My next. <laughs> I know it's hard to kind of move on. You kind of want I to know, sit right? in the story. <laughs> so please, guys, who as you listen to these and you're like, wait, if you're thinking to yourself, don't stop reading. Go click. Order these books. They're so great. Yeah. So my next uh, recommendation is a poet uh, who I love named Elizabeth Alexander. And I think I first sort of met her as a writer when I read actually not her poetry, but a memoir she wrote called The Light of the World. And it's a memoir she wrote um, about her husband who died uh, young and unexpectedly. And it's a memoir of their marriage. And it's a grief memoir, and it is gorgeous, so beautiful, so moving, and um, I think appropriate for our podcast in the sense that it is not an extraordinary story, it's an ordinary story, an ordinary marriage, and yet there is just nothing ordinary about it. It is lyrical and moving and just incredible. So I first read the memoir, and then I uh, started discovering the poetry. So I will read two poems, I think. Um, the first is a lovely little poem about poetry, and I think very fitting for our topic today. This is Ars Poetica Number 100, I Believe, by Elizabeth Alexander. Poetry, I tell my students is idiosyncratic. Poetry is where we are ourselves. Though Sterling Brown said, every eye is a dramatic eye, digging in the clam flats for the shell that snaps, emptying the proverbial pocketbook. Poetry is what you find in the dirt in the corner, over here on the bus, God in the details, the only way to get from here to there. Poetry, and now my voice is rising, is not all love, 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 and I'm sorry the dog died. Poetry, here I hear myself loudest, is the human voice, and are we not of interest to each other? Oh, good, huh? Wow. <laughs> My mom always used to say after a performance or a play at a theater, when the audience doesn't clap right away, when it's just silent, it's like the biggest compliment because they're they're absorbing. Mm. That's how I felt there, when oh, this good, was good. done. Like, I just need to kind of sit there in silence for a while and just absorb yeah. it. Yeah. Are we not of interest to one another? I love that. And then um, I'll read this one as well because it addresses... You know, she was born in Harlem, um, but lived in different places. And so she does write about her experiences growing up black in America. And this poem here addresses it a little more directly. So I thought I'd read this one as well. And this one is called Apollo. 
and she says in Apollo, we pull off to a road shack in Massachusetts to watch men walk on the moon. We did the same thing for three, two, one, blast off, and now we watch the same men bounce in and out of craters. I want a Coke and a hamburger. (laughs) Because the men are walking on the moon, which is now irrefutably not green, not cheese, not a shiny dime floating in a cold blue the way I'd thought. The road shack people don't notice we are a black family, not from there the way it mostly goes. This talking through static bounces in space boots. Tethered to cords is much stranger, stranger even than we are. Mm. That's Apollo. I'm so grateful for artists. (laughs) I'm so grateful Mm, for people who (laughs) wrestle ideas and thoughts and stories down onto a page so the rest of us can lean in and listen. I'm so grateful. Do you have any more, Christy? I have one more to read. I have uh, one more author to recommend, yes. Okay, so I'll read. This next one is, when I bring this story, I wanted to ask if we could all just lay down our, our perceptions of people. I think the thing about stories is it lets us to the inside of who a person is rather than the outside ideas we might have about a person. Hmm. This is a Black woman who was a high public figure, but is from Chicago, like you, Christy. Yeah. (laughs) And her story, I think, is really worth leaning in to listen to. Um, And this is the memoir by Michelle Obama called Becoming. And I was I've tried often in the past to read memoirs maybe by political figures and often just can't get into it. But what I love about this book is from the beginning, the story is really gripping, the inside story of her life. And so I'm going to read from Becoming. Since stepping reluctantly into public life, I've been held up as the most powerful woman in the world and taken down as an angry black woman. I've wanted to ask my detractors which part of that phrase matters to them the most. Is it angry or black or woman? I've smiled for photos with people who call my husband horrible names on national television, but still want a framed keepsake for their mantle. I've heard about the swampy parts of the internet that question everything about me, right down to whether I'm a woman or a man. A sitting U.S. congressman has made fun of my butt. I've been hurt. I've been furious, but mostly, I've tried to laugh this stuff off. There's a lot I still don't know about America, about life, about what the future might bring, but I do know myself. My father, Frazier, taught me to work hard, laugh often, and keep my word. My mother, Marion, showed me how to think for myself and to use my voice. Together in our cramped apartment on the south side of Chicago, they helped me see the value in our story, in my story in the larger story of our country. Even when it's not pretty or perfect, even when it's more real than you want it to be, your story is what you have, what you will always have. It is something to own. For eight years, I lived in the White House, a place with more stairs than I can count, plus elevators, a bowling alley, and an in-house florist. I slept in a bed that was made up with Italian linens, 
Our meals were cooked by a team of world-class chefs and delivered by professionals more highly trained than those at any five-star restaurant or hotel. Secret Service agents with their earpieces and guns and deliberately flat expressions stood outside our doors, doing their best to stay out of our family's private life. We got used to it eventually, sort of. The strange grandeur of our new home and also the constant quiet presence of others. There were days, weeks, and months when I hated politics, and there were moments when the beauty of this country and its people so overwhelmed me that I couldn't speak. Then, it was over. So let me start here with a small thing that happened not long ago. I was at home in the red brick house that my family recently moved into. Our new house sits about two miles from our old house on a quiet neighborhood street. We're still settling in. In the family room, our furniture is arranged the same way it was in the White House. We've got mementos around the house that remind us it was all real. Photos of our family time at Camp David handmade pots given to me by Native American students, a book signed by Nelson Mandela. What was strange about this night was that everyone was gone. Barack was traveling, Sasha was out with friends, Malia's been living and working in New York, finishing out her gap year before college. It was just me, our two dogs, and a silent, empty house like I haven't known in eight years. And I was hungry. I walked down the stairs from our bedroom with the dogs following on my heels, In the kitchen, I opened the fridge. I found a loaf of bread, took out two pieces, and laid them in the toaster oven. I opened a cabinet and got out a plate. I know it's a weird thing to say, but to take a plate from a shelf in the kitchen without anyone first insisting that they get it for me, to stand by myself watching bread turn brown in the toaster, feels as close to a return to my old life as I've come. Or maybe it's my new life just beginning to announce itself. In the end, I didn't just make toast, I made cheese toast, moving my slices of bread to the microwave and melting a fat mess of gooey cheddar between them. I then carried my plate outside to the backyard. I didn't have to tell anyone I was going, I just went. I was in bare feet wearing a pair of shorts. The chill of winter had finally lifted. The crocuses were just starting to push up through the beds along our back wall. The air smelled like spring. I sat on the steps of our veranda, feeling the warmth of the day's sun still caught in the slate beneath my feet. A dog started barking somewhere in the distance, and my own dogs paused to listen, seeming momentarily confused. It occurred to me that it was a jarring sound for them, given that we didn't have neighbors, let alone neighbor dogs, at the White House. For them, all this was new. As the dogs loped off to explore the perimeter of the yard, I ate my toast in the dark, feeling alone in the best possible way. Feeling alone in the best possible way. I like that. <laughs> yes. I think we all wish we could feel a little more of that these days, in these yeah. days of Corona and all our children at home. <laughs> I feel like that could be my motto. <laughs> Feeling alone in the best possible way. Oh, I like that. That's some beautiful writing, beautiful storytelling. Yeah, I know. Feeling alone, especially if you had like a gooey cheese sandwich that you had just made, that would just be the best. Uh-huh. Oh, I can just see it and taste it, all that ooey gooey cheese. Okay, well, my last uh, recommendation is for the, the, the gardeners among us um, and those who like to read about gardening, perhaps just the vicarious gardeners. So I have to say that garden books, well, actually, let me be more specific. I love gardening books, but I love gardening 
memoirs. It is, I love food memoirs. That's another <laughs> related thing, but gar- gardening memoirs are a thing. People writing about their gardens. And especially when um, these people are accomplished writers, then I really love it. So this book is My Garden Book by Jamaica Kincaid, who is a well-known writer who, um, uh, American, but um, originated in her family in the Caribbean. And I love this book because unlike many gardening books and even honest gardening memoirs, Jamaica Kincaid is so out there with how irritated she feels in the garden all the time. Really? Oh, she's (laughs) a woman after my own heart. Are you serious? And oh my gosh, I'm so excited to hear this. I, and I love it. And, And so she's, she's a, gardener's gardener. I mean, she she's doing it. She loves it. It's her element. She's, I mean, this book is, it's about the history of gardens and it's about the home she's lived in and the flowers she's grown. And But she writes about things that I experience, which is that I, I rarely feel this like peaceful euphoria in my garden. I'm always, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe I'm in awe or amazed at something beautiful, but more often than not, I'm worried about the weather. I'm pondering some question. Like, for instance, today, I uh, really all week, I've been pondering the fact that I have this um, boxwood hedge and the leaves are turning orange and something is clearly wrong and I don't know what it is <laughs> and I can't stop thinking about it. That's the kind of thing she writes about. And it's just so real to me. <laughs> um, so I'll just read really just one paragraph that I think encapsulates this aspect of the book that I really appreciate. Um, Yeah, again, it's just this honesty and this authenticity and and this understanding that none of what she's saying detracts from her life as a gardener or or, um, makes her less than as a gardener. It's just a part of being a gardener. Okay, so she says here, and in that summer, oh, in the summer she's been writing about, I'll just say this, is the summer when the wisteria did not bloom when it was supposed to bloom. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it decided to bloom, and she just can't get over that. (laughs) So in that summer, this summer, in which the wisteria bloomed out of turn, it first rained too much, and then it did not rain enough, and then it rained too much again, and then it did not rain again, just not rain again, really. It was not a drought, and by a drought, I mean absence of rain and at the same time a heat that purposely, maliciously reaches deep into the soil and removes as much moisture as it can find, enough moisture to make me worry and then fret and then be vexed. (laughs) The irritation to be found in the garden, the pleasure in it. For it is not an irritation like the kind met when putting on a favorite dress after a little while and then finding that the buttons at the waist or the ones that are supposed to secure the opening across the chest or the ones that are supposed to secure the opening at a vulnerable part in the back are missing or simply won't go anywhere near the buttonhole. The irritation to be found in the garden will not lead to any loss of face. It will only lead to this question, what to do, and the happiness to be found in that. (laughs) Jamaica Kincaid, my garden book. (laughs) So wonderful. I feel so affirmed in all kinds of ways. (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> I'm so grateful for the gift of conversations and listening yeah. for community, yeah. art, and faith, and for the community here that's listening with us today. Absolutely. We're so grateful for our listeners, and we love practicing listening together and then sharing it with you. And we love when you share your stories with us and we get a chance to listen to you. So if you also are reading books this week or you have favorite books or poems by uh, Black writers, we would love to hear your suggestions. And um, yes, please, please get in touch. You could tag us on Instagram. Um, I'm at Christy Purifoy. And I'm at Lisa Joe Baker. And I know we have Black friends in this community too, Black listeners. And mm -hmm. if you are a creator, an artist, a musician, and you want to share your art with us, we'd be so honored if you want to tag us on Instagram. Um, we just continue to just, one of our favorite things about the podcast is the richness of the community and the art that we create together. That's right. Thanks for listening with us this week. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link. <laughs>